and I'm also happy to be back past that 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 stage where I was in for the Real House Foundation, which I'm still in. But I mean, it's just nice to have that milestone like out of the way. It's such a fucking it's such an event to put on. And it's so stressful. And it's such a weird like hustle because you're always like, I feel like such a and I know part of being in a nonprofit is always that ask of money and ask of people. But this like, you know, hey, come on, you coming to the event, you coming to the event like and then there's a big influx of like people waiting to the very last minute. And and you're like, oh, shit, I don't have people I need to buy food for. And all. it's like and then I have personal stress because I've selected the movies. And so I'm always a little bit worried about how those are going to play. I felt pretty good about number one, a little less so about number two. And then but and at the end, end of the day, I, I'm not overly concerned about it because you, you kind of have to wash your hands of it. But but today, no, I'm excited about Elaine May. I'm excited about tearing into fucking Darren Arafonsky and and and. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, just, it's just good to talk movies. I'm just really excited about getting back into this chair. Jason to the chair in the studio and welcome back screamers to what I am calling May Madness. I like it. Where we yes. dig into the films of Elaine May, the criminally underrated filmmaker that is Elaine May. Only four films. A New Leaf in 71, The Heartbreak Kid in 72, followed by Mikey and Nikki, and then you have Ishtar. Ishtar. That's it for her. So you're excited to do that. You're excited to get into to Elaine May. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. I I have I've been a fan of Nichols and May for a really long time. It's it's one of those it's it's weird to like find comedy, especially from the kind of burgeoning area era of comedy that still holds up today. It exists, but if you but if you ask me to go back and listen to a Red Skelton bit, I'm gonna fucking fall on my face and, and because you can't, right? I get that he was funny and I get that he was a thing. Even Lenny Bruce. There are Lenny Bruce bits that are good, but the most of the stuff that Lenny Bruce came out with, especially when you're talking about like 70s politics or 60s politics or 50s politics, I'm like, I wasn't there. So it's it's very hard to be timely and still be considered funny later on. I mean, it happens occasionally. Latter era Carlin, where he was more angry, but mid era Carlin, unlistenable. I am a connoisseur of stand-up comedy, so I, I go and listen just in general. Are there courses you have to take, like 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 a sommelier <laughs> yes. of, of, of comedy? <laughs> I will give you this very, very fine Martin Mole bit, and it's very droll. But... Oh, oh, I see there's notes of Tomlin here. <laughs> Not to interrupt that, but I think that one of the reasons that Nichols and May, that their comedy remains relevant is because of the improv nature. Right. They were well ahead of their times and sort of what they were addressing and a lot of what they were talking about but because of the back and forth because of that improv nature there's that element that's always sort of like walking this tightrope that still makes it funny even if you're like look kids have been making out in cars for however long now <laughs> right. right right but they never yeah and to that extent yes i mean that 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 improvisation kind of lends itself to being hitting on timeless topics that never really change right like you said with the teenagers or the adultery or, or all of their kind of signature bits that they did those the, I, again that just it, it lended itself to being able to listen to it now and still be able to relate and see how far ahead of everyone else they were but you can also then trace the influence because there is so much you see so much of elaine may in lily tomlin before lily tomlin did the operator bit elaine may did her own operator bit and you see lily tomlin take it sort of turn it up to 11 
where May was more restrained, but it's there. It's that same thing. You see Elaine May in Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Steve Martin, Letter May. Amy Sherman-Palladino. I mean, like all of these. Yeah. And Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner. And this uh, the list goes on and on and on of of what she pioneered. And the fact that we don't have her on the Mount Rushmore of comedy that, that people don't sing her praises and maybe I don't know. I, I just well, I think I think we'll talk about why. And I think I mean, especially a little bit with these films today, a new leaf and the heartbreak kid. But I think more with Mikey, Nikki and Ishtar. And of course, it's this tired old trope of she was a difficult woman. Right. I, and, right. and I want to say that in quotes, a difficult woman. What she was was someone who knew what she wanted and what she wanted to do. And of course, men don't like that. Well, Especially, I mean, I do. I do. I mean, you, it's fine. <laughs> you tell me what you want. And <laughs> But yeah, especially 50 some odd years ago, it, it, I, I can only imagine. Yeah. And, and you're right. We'll get into it. But just the fact that it, that don't talk about a new leaf and no one talks about a heartbreak kid because no one can see a heartbreak kid. It's well, impossible. They to can find. see the Ben Stiller version. <sighs> they shouldn't. I don't know why you but brought they it up. Can't. Just, well, look, because I, I figured you were going to ask me at some point. Have, Have you seen, seen the Ben Stiller version? And I was going to say, wait, 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 stop. <laughs> Is that your impression of me? <laughs> no, that's that's my impressive. My that's my impression of anyone who asked me a question that I don't want to answer. <laughs> So have you seen the Ben Stiller version with Carlos Mencia? I I refuse to watch. Look, if it's not Zoolander, I'm not watching Ben Stiller. I will talk a little bit about (laughs) it when we get into Heartbreak Kid and how I I am not a a Fairly Brothers fan necessarily. I don't, but I'm also not overly dismissive as they get into their later career where we were talking about Green Book and this pseudo seriousness and, and the way that they take themselves. Look, I, I thought there's something about Mary was funny. I, I I laugh at Dumb and Dumber. I was not a huge fan of Kingpin when it came out, but even like Siskel and Ebert, like I remember Siskel and Ebert when I first saw Kingpin, I was like, this is bullshit. And, and I watched Siskel and Ebert just, they were just effusive over it. They were just like, this is the future of comedy. We like died laughing and it's like, really? And then Dumb and Dumber came along and there's something about Mary came along, but they do everything as if it's spunk in the hair. And, and, it's, yeah. and it's just with that huge, huge, broad comedy that they do where everything's got to be Jim Carrey screaming in your face. That works when you've got Jim Carrey. I, the, the Heartbreak Kid, they took everything that was a good about the Elaine May piece and just had tried to ramp it up to 12 and then it never and like it, it all of the subtext all of the subtleness all of the humor was just basically sucked out of it because you're now you're just dealing with these grating awful characters and if you don't have a fine touch with like Elaine May had with with the heartbreak kid and with Groden and Shepard and her daughter you you lose everything and yeah, it was a, it was it was just it was just awful, <laughs> just awful. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll touch a little bit more on Elaine May's history when we when we get into a new leaf. But you brought up this idea of sort of this like false sincerity, and so I want right. to talk about the whale because that's kind of how I I feel about it. I wanna I want to before we kind of talk more about the whale. I want to to note to the listener that in my notes about the whale, I have in all caps, there is no humanity in this film. There is my review of the whale. So I started looking back at his filmography and how it's tended to swing towards, the fantastical is not the right word, but that's a sentiment I'm getting to where it's these extreme pieces 
because I don't know if everything that he does has substance to it. I look back at something like Noah. I felt I liked Mother. Um, I really dug it, but there was the the critique of it that it wore its its message waved very much on the on its nose, right on the, on the nose. And I get that. I totally get that. I thought that the way that it was put together and the way that it all came together really worked for me. But if you look at something like Noah, which is only spectacle for spectacle's sake, right? This is an agnostic director. What I, I don't, I still don't know his, I don't know his religious background. It doesn't really matter. But this is a secular director directing a two-paragraph story in the Old Testament and putting a hundred million dollar spin on it. The fact that he got that film made is amazing in and of itself. But it's, it is. And the fact that it made $100 million is also amazing. But I don't know this and to this movie to, to the it really is. We wouldn't be talking about this if it wasn't for Frazier in a fat suit. We wouldn't be. There's nothing to this film. So I put the fat suit aside for a moment. And this is after school special horseshit. There's nothing there. It has two really, really stellar performances. It has two okay performances because I wouldn't even say okay. They are there and they're fine. I don't dislike Sadie Sink as an actress. I think she's a fine artist. I think that she has a promising career ahead of her, but she's given nothing other than Stranger Things vibes to do this entire film. It's almost like they said, hey, you know that character that you play on Stranger? Just do that. And did you, this is what I do for for this pod. Did you try to find any clips of the play? That the movie's based on. I did not, no. I did, and I'm sorry I did, because it's the same fucking thing. And the teenage daughter character in that, same thing. Angsty teen girl on her phone too much. So it's like they went out and found the actress who was playing the angsty teen girl on a TV show and said, hey, go do that thing that you do that everyone likes. Right, that we expect and, you to do. And, then and she did. Do it, and, right? and and yeah, she was good. But it was like, oh, you're Max from Stranger Things. It's the same thing. And it's not her fault. I want to make that clear. Right, right. It's the direction. It's the writing. It is not her fault. She's doing exactly what she's asked to do. So all of that said, that this movie is, it's sentimentality, it's storyline, the, the, char- the, fo- the main character that it focuses on are all the wrong things to do. The, the storyline is so pedantic and pedestrian that the story is focusing on whatever his name is. I don't even remember. Charlie. Charlie. And not on the people that are around him, the, his lover, his lover's sister. Those are way more interesting stories to be told here. We're just focusing on, and we're, and, and it's only in a Todd Browning freaks kind of way. And even less than that, because Todd Browning freaks actually had some, some, something to say there. This it's so, I don't understand. Are we so wrapped up in Frazier's performance, which is, it's weird to me that we're, I guess, glomming on to this idea that the minute that somebody has a recognizable role or a, or some sort of slight uptick in their career that we're ready to, to brandish this, some sort of renaissance era of that actor. We had with, we had it with Matthew McConaughey in that TV show um, that I can't pull off the thing. True, True Detective, right. And we had it with, obviously Travolta was probably the first one that it happened with. And then, and now with Brendan, but Brendan Fraser's been in things that were good. It's, it's weird to me that we have this thing where we've, okay, we've set aside this guy because he's gained a little bit of weight. Now he's balding and he's olding and, he's, and, he's, and, he's, and he, so he does, he's not George of the Jungle greased up starving himself <laughs> like this athletic god anymore and and he's not headlining huge movies anymore but there's also documented reasons of why all that is and then and then we have to champ now we have to like 
put this on him as as oh he's back he's finally back i mean the, we we knew he all we knew we had it in him the entire time when he was fine he was a fine actor this is a fine performance i don't i don't begrudge this performance that he does i mean evoke emotion but i think from opening scene of this movie which at the opening scene i thought oh man is he really doing something subversive here like oh he's we're watching him masturbate and that's what the that's what Darren Erfonsky is telling the audience that they're doing, and I was like, "Oh, this could be really, no. really good." No, 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 no. We get to watch him fucking. We get to watch him order a pizza every night. We get to watch him almost choke to death on a meatball sub. Isn't that funny? Isn't that isn't that isn't that poignant? Isn't that terrifying and horrifying? We get to watch him fucking eat candy bars by the dozens, it, eat himself to death. And it, 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 there's nothing about his fucking weight informs this character at all, at all. It is just there to evoke. Empathy, pity, pity. Yes, pity. It's pity. Yes, you're right. That's why I struggle with the word. It it, it should be empathy. But again, this is the thing. This is why there's no humanity. We don't see him as a human being. No, we see him him as as a giant. As a giant thing to go, oh, I'm so glad that's not me. And I feel like, I mean, this is what Aronofsky and the playwright, that's what they're doing. They're saying, look, you could be like this. And then watch, watch how he struggles and how he overcomes at the end and finds some kind of... It's 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 horseshit. All we're do all this is spectacle. This is fucking spectacle, and it's Roxanne Gay wrote a really good piece in the New York Times that everyone should go read. I mean, she says in this in this in this piece that she hopes that the people watching this film have the cultural literacy to see past what he's put on on the screen because it ain't it, right? Yeah, yeah it's not. And we all are. I did it get nominated for Best Picture? I can't even remember. No. Now. Okay. So no. It, it just, it's, it's just, just, it's just, a, two, it's just the two nods. That... Producers Guild a, a nomination for Best Picture, but but okay, not not at the Oscars. Well, at least that's something, right? Oh, Hong Chao was great. Hong Chao I, was amazing. That to me, that was the best. She was the best. Look, she's kind of the best thing of anything she's in. Yeah. No. No. Absolutely. I, she was fantastic. <clears throat> yeah, I thought Fraser was fine. Fraser was fine, but I don't. It's the same feeling I get when everyone talks about Kate Blanchett's role in Tar. I'm not sure which critic said it, but when when referring to Kate Blanchett's performance, they called it aggressive competency. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about the Fraser. I think there's more he's trying to do something different with this, but I don't think that it is of such a high status that that we need to fawn over it, and like you said, sort of a, a, announce the second coming of this actor. No, we should be we should be denouncing this film. It should be derided. It should yeah. be we should see it for what it is, which again is sideshow. It is it is I guess, like I said, spectacle for he one. It's the wrestler. The movie is the wrestler. It's the exact same fucking film as the wrestler. It's I, I, almost identical, beat per beat. It is the wrestler. Bravo for you milking that script for for you know for two films. I just and I will say this um, just about the the fat suit itself and and the makeup. I thought that those were really really convincing. That's about as all I can as I can say yeah. about it. I mean, I, I was it it, it at, at at a certain point once I realized we were just we had these long shots of him shirtless walking down the hallway, him struggling in his apartment or his home or what have you. And his, 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 but once you start watching him eat over and over and over again, this is not even what eat, what's eating Gilbert grape type level of, of filmmaking. This is just look at this person, pity him, be glad you're not him. And Oh, also he has depression. He has a lover. 
he has these other real things that may be affecting things. this trauma and, 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 and are more interesting, but we're not really going to get into that. Here, watch him order another pizza. Had you have focused this on Child's character, where it is about a, care t- uh, a caretaker who has watched her brother's lover, who her brother has been ostracized by a fundamentalist church and decided to take his own life. And his father, who's, his father was the leader of that church. So not just ostracized from the church, but ostracized from his family. So if, if you focus on her, where she's taking care of a man who was her brother's lover, who has fallen into mental health issues, depression, what have you, and has let himself, and she's watching this person. Because again, there's a story, right? Where she's like, maybe she's letting him do this because she fucking blames him for it. Or, and But she also feels guilty about that, and so she's helping him out. And then you enter this other character who's from that church that, that killed her brother, and he's trying to convert this person who she is dealing with. That's a story I would—that's a story, right? Yeah. That, is, that is the good angle in this movie, yeah. focusing this on Charlie and— f- Fuck you for calling it the goddamn whale. I know. I mean, fuck you. How are we letting that fucking happen? Yeah. Because and, and with a with a with a fucking oh we're, oh no, I'm gonna mention Moby, Moby Dick. Dick. I'm gonna mention Moby yeah. Dick in it, but that makes no fucking sense. That tie does not work out at all. But that's the way we get away with this. Mm-hmm. Why don't no. we just call this Fatty Fat Fatty Fur? And then well, then that'll be the title of the movie. But no, you can't do that. But calling it the whale means you have no, like, you don't have any empathy. You don't have, I mean, like, there's no, you want this character to exist so we can all cover our mouths and, and say, oh, my God, can you believe it? Can you believe how much he's eating? Can you believe how big he is? Can you believe the difficulties? And, of course, he should hide him. Fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you. Fuck you. And fuck everybody who didn't tell you to stop. Because this movie is bullshit upon bullshit upon bullshit. And I, I, it just, and by the time that it ends, which, so at this point, I'm lost, right? I'm like, I'm not lost in the movie. I'm just, the movie has lost me. And so the, there's a big thing in the movie about Charlie getting up and, and moving without a walker. And that's what his daughter is, is pressuring him to do. And so we're made to believe that he stands up at the end of the movie and walks towards his daughter. And then he has this epiphany. Because Charlie's been giving himself basically a week to live. This is the last week of a man's life that has hypertension and, and diabetes and is about to die because his blood pressure is four million over six or whatever. <laughs> I don't even know. That's I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the dial just goes up that high. Yeah. And so he walks towards her. He takes a few steps and then we see a bright light and we see Charlie lift off of his feet like he's ascending into heaven. What all I was left with was one. I was just fucking I was flummoxed and and like I was just I was dying in laughter like I couldn't control myself. I was laughing so hard as I was leaving the theater. But then I was thinking for Sadie Sink, that is a horrifying that he just died. So now he just died and she's left to deal with. She's an 18-year-old kid who's our 16-year-old kid who's left to deal with her father, who she's just a, a really, strange father. Yeah, a strange father who she's just come back in contact with in the last week of her life, or week of his life, now has to deal with this dead body and roll credits, I guess. And we're all supposed to feel so good because Charlie made it out. The one thing that he wouldn't have wanted, he wouldn't have wanted to leave any of his loved ones. Which is why he was holed up in his own home, basically secluded from everyone. He wouldn't have wanted to leave his loved ones with that scenario, even though that was inevitable anyway. It is such a piece of shit movie. And it's one of those things where, like, it's, it's, I, I, had it been nominated, it probably would have won. It would have been a green book situation where people would have come out of the woodwork saying, why are we, why are we, 
like celebrating this film when it really is he could have been a he could have just been a dude like you could have made a you could have made a run of the mill movie with a great Brendan uh, Fraser performance with a guy who was just depressed and had hold himself up in his apartment and and shut himself away from the world and let his health deteriorate and and but no no you had to make him a fat guy you had to and you had to have something to point at and again I want to make sure that the that the playwright gets some of this blame because it's originally his thing. And from the, cause I can't find all of it online, but I did go scouring around looking for clips and the clips that I found are pretty much beat for beat the same thing. And he helped, this guy helped write the script. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. I, I want, I want to quote, I want to quote Roxane Gay from that, from an article for a second. And she says, the on-screen portrayal of fatness bears little resemblance to the lived experience of fat people. It is, it is a gratuitous self-aggrandizing fiction at best i just wanted to put that out there yeah. and, the, and, and those are her words directly that she's just like this is not how this is not fair to people this is not fair to fat people it's not fair to to assume that this is how right, all if, yeah all, everyone like that right lives i mean i i don't know the the the, the right nomenclature here but i mean that's her point there are some interesting things here going back to to liz and her relationship with charlie and and her brother charlie's lover one of the things she blames herself for is not getting her brother to eat who was in such a depression that he wasted away and then eventually killed himself and so you see then how she takes that and enables charlie's eating that's like you said that's interesting but we just it's like kind of it's call, thrown out there. But, it's tossed off. It's just, again. It's just like you said. You call the movie the whale. Yeah. Right. It's so. You should have called it Charlie. It's so fucking dumb. And again, like I said, I, I, I really, really was. Like I know that that I don't. I, I, with, <laughs> without my spin on it, I don't understand the masturbation scene. I really don't. So I think that's. I. I mean, he, he could have done it in a different way, but it, it introduces us to the fact that Charlie is gay. Because and, and because that's what he problems. sees on the screen, and that effectively, we're not sure what's going to kill him first: eating or an orgasm. <laughs> it, mean, it it also it also gives an excuse for. <laughs> I'm not laughing at the <laughs> just laughing at the that's ludicrousness okay. of yeah. of yeah that whatever <laughs> of that right? right, but it also gives the filmmakers a way to introduce the the Bible thumper. Right. Sure. The, the kid right, to come right. in and then help and then sort of insert himself in there. So, I mean, it's all kind of mechanics, but it doesn't, I don't even, I don't know. I didn't need that fucking kid. I didn't need the, the, the Bible. I know he's not a Bible salesman. I was going to keep calling him, calling no, him he's a, a Bible an, salesman. Evangelical, like kind of rogue. Evangelical. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He is a, he's a rebel evangelical. And it gives um, Sadie Sink's character something, a cool thing to, to interact with. And also for you to be able to question her motives of whether she's <laughs> actually trying to help yeah. or not. Also, I didn't think when I started this podcast today, I knew that, that we would discover what's going to be in my tombstone. Here lies Jason Wise when we don't know what killed him. Was either eating or, or <laughs> Let's move on. Okay, so that was our take on, on the whale. Um, as you can tell, we're not, not huge fans and don't think you should be either. But hey, Hong Chow, Brendan Fraser, congratulations on your Oscar nominations. I know you're listening. Um, Hong Chow, you have a standing invitation to come by anytime. All right, let's, let's jump into A New Leaf. He drove like a demon. He flew like a hawk. 
water he was a master to. He was, in fact, the ultimate playboy. And then, one day... Harold, would you like to ask you something? Certainly, sir. You've been with me for many years now, Harold. What would you do if I told you I had lost all my money? I should leave immediately, sir, upon giving the proper notice. Just marriage. Marriage? You mean to a woman? Yes, sir. That is what I had in mind. And the girl? She's enormously wealthy, too. Uh, forgive me, Mama. Henrietta, what I'm trying to say is... Will you marry me? Beg your pardon? Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Never have I seen one woman in whom every social grace was so lacking. That woman is a menace not only to health, but to Western civilization as we know it. She doesn't deserve to live. Forget I said that. Oh, Henry! Walter Matthau and Elaine May. All right, Henrietta, I'm ready for you now. Take a deep breath, hold your nose, and let go. You'll die laughing at the two of them in A New Leaf from Paramount Pictures. Let's, let's yeah, turn over a new that. leaf after the whale and let's get into <laughs> Elaine May. What else do you need to say about Elaine May? I want to say this to kind of introduce all the films. All of her films deal with these kind of dysfunctional duos, these relationships of different kinds. In the first two, the two we're going to talk about today, they're romantic relationships. They are marriages of a sort. In the following two, they're, they're, they're platonic relationships of masculinity, right. friendships. Uh, Although maybe set in a later time, you could you could put a romantic spin on them. If they were made in a different, if they were made now, you might. Well, I think I think there's something. I think that friendship is a kind of a love, right? I mean, there's a platonic love there. Um, sure, sure. But also, like, all of them are kind of breezy and funny and still have this kind of bite to them. And at the center of so many of these things is the insecurities, arrogance, and lack of self-awareness and fickleness of kind of obtuse men. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the first two for sure. I do think the first two for sure are indictments on male male childness i mean like not childness but you know their childlike behavior i think just in general this this arrested development and a and, kind of egotism yeah absolutely and there's a there's a argument against capitalism there's an argument against a and again i'm not the right person to talk about this but an argument against uh, a kind of a backlash against a jewish lifestyle like and faith coming from an like a self-hating kind of Jewish uh, sure. es- establishment. And really. even even in um, The Heartbreak Kid, Elaine May, there were some shots taken at her about this kind of like Jewish 
anti-Semitic. And, and, and the same the same thing that people took Philip Roth to task to in, in Pornoy's complaint. And, and so and that and they in fact, this is kind of labeled in sort of a, a bizarre, like very brief period of time where like there's a, like a Jewish new wave of films that come out. Because The Graduate has a similar you know, similar uh, ideals of like trying to break out of that kind of Jewish <clears throat> upbringing and, and society to, to get to this other kind of Gentile whiteness that exists on a, maybe on a, on a, as a, as a prize thing to, to ob- obtain or to, to, to want to get to, I guess. Is and, and that's the problem with Sybil Shepard's character. I mean, she's a shiksa, right? She's not right. Jewish. She's Groden is Groden's character is Jewish. And so leaving Jeannie Berlin, who's brilliant, by the way, she's so amazing. Good. Yeah. And going and, and, and chasing after. Sybil right. Shepard. So, so give us, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. It's hard right. not to bounce around because these two, these two films are so similar, but yeah. Give I, us a, give us a rundown on what a new, I'll do a new is. All okay. About. So, Henry Graham, played by Walter Matthau, wealthy bachelor, runs out of the money in his trust fund. The only thing Henry has ever wanted to be is rich. Um, it's the only thing he's good at, even. So he gets a loan of $50,000 from his uncle Harry in order to keep up appearances and to give uh, to give him time to find kind of a rich wife and pay back his uncle. So he's at, he has six weeks to do so, or everything he has goes to Uncle Harry. Henry is completely uninterested in women and seemingly sex. He says to his uncle, I can engage in any romantic activity with an urbanity of disinterest. I, I find this film to be so sharp and so funny and so intelligent. So as Henry's running out of time, he meets Henrietta Lowell, played by May, a clumsy, shy, meek botanist who inherited her father's fortune and has no other relatives. They end up getting married after kind of a quick courtship and although henry is plotting to murder henrietta he ends up reshaping and remanaging her life all for the better her house staff have been taking advantage of her so he fires them he learns how to manage her accounts and estate and do taxes she's completely disorganized and welcomes the help he provides she discovers he has a BA in history and says she can get him a job teaching at the university. And they can spend all their time together grading, grading papers. papers, having lunch in the in the faculty cafeteria, etc., etc. Henrietta discovers on their honeymoon a new species of fern, and she names it after Henry, the Asophilia grahami. <laughs> so they go basically under, giving him her her immortality. Her, yes, yes, yeah. They had this conversation about immortality, and he's like, "Well, you gave it to me. You mean I'll be in the kind of index?" And she's like, "Well, yeah, sure." So they go on a field research trip where, while canoeing, they run into rapids and are tossed into the water. Henrietta can't swim, but Henry makes it to shore and is intent on letting her drown collecting all her money and kind of, you know, living his rich lifestyle. But he comes across an example of Henrietta's fern and realizes he actually does love her. So he saves her, comforts her, and resigns himself to his fate of being married and always being there for Henrietta. Have you read anything about the original script for this and the really kind of how the ending was differently shaped. So May's yeah. first pass at this. And this when is, it's based off, of, it's, I'm sorry, it's based off a short story. Right. Um, by Jack Ritchie, who wrote mostly detective stories and detective. I'm not sure if he, how many novels he wrote, but mostly stories. So this is Elaine May's directorial debut. And she, her, her first cut comes in at a little over three hours. <laughs> Which, which, kudos, man. I mean, that that is that is gutsy, just in and of itself. Knowing that you've never directed a film before, knowing that, <clears throat> knowing that Robert Evans, who's a, who's the head of Paramount at this point, is never going to accept a three-hour romantic comedy from a first-time director. No, no. Not even that, and she didn't even want to. She didn't even want to direct it. 
Right. She wrote the screenplay. The studio said, hey, here's $200,000. Her agent said, no, 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 I got a better idea. I'm going to strike up a deal where you can direct X number of pictures and I can produce. <laughs> right. So she had no real intention of doing that in the first place, which I find interesting. And she was paid about seven times less than what Walter Matthau was. Walter yeah. Matthau, well, of course, and to be fair, Walter Matthau was a big name and, and helped get this movie made. They, I mean, they yeah. weren't going to make it without him. Right. And, and did you see who they wanted for May's part first? No. Carol Channing. Okay. And May said, uh-uh. May said, look, the, the, the female Can't actress that. has to disappear. Right. She goes, she has to disappear. This is about him. She's like, this is the man's story. She goes, so I went and picked the actress. The studio said, no, you're going to do it. <laughs> that, was the, that was the option they gave her. Right. No, but you'll do it for the same money. And she's like, shit. Yeah, so she's doing three jobs three for the jobs. exact same money yeah. and getting paid seven times less than what Mothra Mathau is. Uh, so the original script has really wasn't about Mathau finding himself in love with Henrietta. It was more that he was resigned to his fate. And so he had already killed two people in the script. Mm -hmm. Basically, her handlers <clears throat> have been taking advantage of her throughout the throughout her. Once she's got the money, she has this group of hanger on I mean, this, this kind of entourage of people who work for her, quote unquote, work for her, but also work for her like, lawyer cousin. Right. And then they're basically <clears throat> milking her yeah. for everything she's worth, essentially. And and she's. Seemingly fine with that. When Mouthout comes in, he takes care of all of that. He realizes the grift that's going on and kicks them all out. One would imagine that it that the that the lawyer gets murdered and someone else in the process gets murdered as well. And at that point, <clears throat> Mathau, I don't know if it's overcome with guilt or just realizing what he's done and, and doesn't want to commit yet another murder. It's his penance. That's right. He so he resigns himself to live with Henrietta and be married to Henrietta because he's murdered these other people. So yeah, as penance. So he doesn't really fall in love with her more than he does just this is my life now. One and you could argue some of that still remains. Although there is this is definitely a happier ending where Henry comes around to realize that. He truly does, if not love her, still he doesn't mind. He likes being, he likes having something to to take care of, something to kind of feel like he's, and also to kind of give back to him because this guy's who's lived a solitary lifestyle, who's only been about his money and and, and really his man, you know, whatever is whatever you call those things, gentleman's gentleman, <laughs> right? And right. even his, his gentleman's gentleman says, you know, sir, you're actually quite good at this. Which right. I thought once, was once he starts taking care of her taxes and like, yes. And the gentleman's gentleman is the only one who's really seemingly upset. And I guess he's the only one that really knows, but he's the only one that's really seemingly upset about Henry's intentions to kill Henrietta. Yeah. And like, doesn't really intervene, but he does, he has looks of worry. Yeah. And, <laughs> throughout and, and the film. little bit, right? I mean, and little kind of comments like that. You're actually quite good at this, you know, and kind of like these small encouragements. The, the first thing I, this, and so it all, so Robert Evans takes it away from her and she sues Paramount mm. and, and he cuts it down to an hour and 40. And it's all well received. It's, it yeah. does relatively well at the box office. It allows, but she does sue Paramount. Um, the judge eventually throws the case out because the judge is like, no, nah, it's a fine movie. You're fine. Don't even worry <laughs> yeah, about it. The, did you? So they they wanted to take it away from her completely, right? But she had a penalty clause in the contract that they would have had to have. They would have paid her like a million dollars, like in today's money. They were like, "Well, we can't do that because it went over." And this is a, a theme in in May's films, right? Had an initial budget of one point three million, which ended up at four million. 
And it went 40 days over shooting schedule. <laughs> well, May was, to her to her credit, she even says, I, look, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, she wasn't shooting coverage. So, like, so in what coverage is, if you're not aware, placing additional cameras around so you don't just have the, 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 the you know, the, the camera focus on the main action. You can cut away and, and move around and things like that. She wasn't even doing that. So she had to go back after principal photography and then shoot, just shoot coverage. And so there was just a ton of stuff that, that she didn't know. And also, but I would say this, I'm sure that she was met with almost hostility to every single turn. So before this movie, Paramount hadn't hired a woman director since 1931. She was like the first woman with a with a studio deal since Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino in '67. Yeah. Of the of the eight films that were directed by females in, by in studios in the '70s, May directed three of them. So I mean, like, not just to say that she was breaking new ground is is one an understatement just because of the of the film's subject matter and how it's handled, but just the fact that she was look every it's one of those things where you say like. Every modern comedian owes something to Lenny Bruce, right? Lenny Bruce laid it bare and it just basically trailblazed his way for everyone else who came beyond him. Same thing with Elaine May, I don't, especially when you're dealing with with like women who are directing in the studio system today. They owe it all to Elaine May and everything that she did and all the struggles that she had making these movies. And not, not to say that she was perfect by any means, but but. But it, it wouldn't, and there probably would have somebody else come along. But I mean, like she did it first, and it was just—it's crazy that the four films that she was able to get out are mm. as good as they actually are, and the yeah. three are just are astonishing. One is not as good as not as bad as you right. think it is, but it's not—it's <laughs> right. not a great right. movie. But. And I feel like the latter two have more problems, right? More of right. this kind of, and, and again, we'll get into that. I, the one—the the one thing I want to say is this movie is—is. Is, hilarious it is side splittingly funny and just from a not only just from a from a like a graduate level of the script being funny and and like the 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 whole premise being funny but just side splittingly funny in its in its in its physicality all of there's just so many set pieces as you move from 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 bit to bit that are so great i mean there's there's a scene and and there's a scene at the very I mean, you know, after they get married, where Henrietta comes in and she's they're trying on the honeymoon, to, right? They're, but neither one of these people are very sexy people. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not in tune with their the, their sexuality. She comes into the bedroom wearing a nightgown and she's got it on wrong. <laughs> She's got her head through the armhole, so she thinks that she's wearing it kind of looped over like a toga, and and and. The foppishness of of Walter Matthau's character Henry looking at her and knowing that she's dressed wrong, he tried this I, this back and forth of him trying to help her get her head right in this <laughs> nightgown, and he's got the, the 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 bottom of the nightgown lifted over her, and he's like cajoling her to move certain ways and saying her name over and over and again. Henrietta, that's the armhole. Henrietta, Henrietta. <laughs> Even before that, when he proposes to her, she so he there's a there's kind of a the meat cute in this movie is Henrietta is 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 so, yeah I want to talk I want to talk about that right scene. so yeah. the meat cute of this movie is Henrietta is at a country club and or at a wedding reception or she's at no a, it's, it's like a tea party right, it's tea it's, party, it's like right. a it's like a um I hesitate to call it a salon. Right. But it's that kind of idea. There's a bunch of like rich people, pseudo intellectuals, at this woman's house, and and they're having tea. And Henrietta's fumbling over her teacup. She can she can continues to spill her tea on this expensive carpet. And Henry, seeing an opportunity here, and knowing that she has money, stands up and defends her to this other group of um, socialites. 
and she becomes uh, enthralled with him. And and this is where okay, this is something else I wanted to get to about Elaine May and and the script because there are lines in this film that if you blink blink <laughs> your ears I don't know you miss them or you don't realize how funny they are. So. Henry comes into this tea party, and the woman there introduces him to some some people, and their last name is Hitler. And she just kind of, you know, <laughs> says it, and he just goes, you're not by any chance related to the Boston Hitlers, are you? And I, <laughs> I hear that, and I just, I just lose it. But again, like, I'm just cracking up. In this same scene, this Elaine May is holding her teacup while Henry is trying to take her white gloves out of her hand, and she does this thing where she's trying to make this loop with her hands <laughs> with her fingers that he can put the glove in and take the teacup and it's just hilarious and as they storm out henry questions the host the hostess's erotic relationship with her carpet <laughs> yes <laughs> so i mean going back to that line about doing things with like an urbanity of disinterest I, it's so so brilliant the way she does this and the recurring comic motif of carbon on the valves with his Ferrari and other cars. It's just, it, again, if you blink, you'll miss it. And, and oh, can we talk about his helmet? <laughs> so he's got this Ferrari, this, this fantastic Ferrari that never runs. That he, he, he drives it in the city, so of course it doesn't, it doesn't run. But he, he wears this racing helmet every time he drives it. No one ever mentions it. It is just there. It is just there, and it's so good. But again, those little details that seem innocuous but are just hilarious yeah so <clears throat> when he proposes to her uh henrietta again pours wine on on a, on a very like fluffy furry carpet that he has another expensive carpet and then drops her glass and, and the glass breaks henry kneels in broken glass to <laughs> to propose and she's just, and she's more concerned with Henry and his pain level. And he's like, I'm already down here. I mean, I know I'm butchering the scene, but he's like, I'm already down here, Henrietta. Let's just. Will you just say yes, please, so yes I can so get up? <laughs> oh, Henrietta, say yes so I can stand up. Thank you. And then it, the other big scene for me was when he's like reading about poisons. <laughs> they go out. They go out on a trip. They like they go hiking together. And and, and Henry doesn't want to do anything but be rich. He has no interest in doing anything other than just living a lavish lifestyle. They go hike, hiking together. It, it, it's the, the the evolution of their relationship and, and him kind of taking her under his wing, but also being led around by the nose by her is, it really is a touching love story once you frame it in the sense of the hour and 40 minutes that we get with the released movie. Yeah. But he's reading about poisons as she's about to fall off of a cliff, knowing that he could just very easily push her off of the cliff. He's so enthralled with reading about poisons that when he sees her, he doesn't even think about killing her. He saves her because she's trying to get at a, 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 a new plant that she thinks that she's discovered. All of it is this comedy of errors. And it's so like, but it, it sounds so broad, but under her direction, it's so it's so well done and it's so subtle. And, and not to say of anything like the indictment on white male superiority yeah. and the capitalist system and framing Henry as this fucking horrible human being who still comes to redemption at the end. But like, I don't recall any movies that weren't like overly slapsticky that really put it, put men to task like these two films do, especially Heartbreak Kid. But in this movie, 
where you're the there's no hero here. I mean, Henrietta's the the background hero, right? But but she's the background character. We're watching Henry's story. Henry's a piece of shit. I mean, from yeah. jump, yeah, like he's a bad Arthur, right? He's bad Dudley yeah. Moore. Right? It's <clears throat> he he has no redeeming qualities. He is terrible. He has no relationships with anyone outside of outside his of gentleman's outside gentleman, of, right? Outside of the money, right? Yeah. I mean. And he's so afraid that when he loses his money, that he's going to be, you know, put out on Skid Row. That that he'll that, that and the only thing that comes to mind is not get a job, is not do anything. It is to find money and murder the person who has that money, yeah. so he get, he so he can continue to live this life where he's already wasted this opportunity in the first place. Yeah, I mean, he has no interest in sex. He has no interest in womanizing. I mean, he's like the fa- the very thought of being in a relationship seems abhorrent to him. What does he say? She's going to be there and ask me questions and ask me about my day. I, I can't. You know, he's just distraught about that. When he meets with his lawyer to find out all his money's gone because his, his checks are bouncing. And the lawyer explains to him, you, you have no capital. And he's like, but what about this check? This check has to be paid. He just <laughs> he can't like get it through his head. He's a baby. He's an oh. infant. That And he's only, yeah, he, he's because, again, the helmet, right? It, it's right. all about he doesn't care that his Ferrari doesn't run. He cares that he has a Ferrari that he can drive occasionally 100 yards and then let it break down and get it towed into <laughs> right, the city. Right. I mean, yeah, he is. Uh, he is redeemed by Henrietta. I mean, th- through her, he's able to realize something else about himself and and be okay with staying in this marriage and not killing her. I, I don't want to go as far as to say that he has found a purpose. I mean, I think we put that kind of on him. We're like, oh, now you found a way to be a better person. I don't think he thinks that at all. But you could see that kind of reading of the film where she has lifted him up right, right. through their time together. So taking May as... A woman, and and what is your take on the feminist stance on this? Because I think she she faced a lot of criticism uh, because she wasn't more feminist in a time where films that were being, especially the independent films that were being done by women, mm. were and 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 obviously women were you know you're a few years away from Roe v. Wade, you're a few years away from Title Nine. These where this it was kind of an uptick where now she's focusing on boorish men who are seemingly at the surface taking advantage of these women who are letting themselves be taken advantage of. What's your take on? So I, I think that one, the men and especially in the heartbreak kid, but but even here to an extent, get their kind of comeuppance. They don't get what they want in the end. Mathau's character, you know, Henry wants to be a rich bachelor. It's not what he's gonna get. And he is the one who's had to make the adjustments. He has to change to fit into this new world. Henrietta does not have to change. Henrietta has all the power in that relationship, even with the money notwithstanding. Henrietta does exactly what she wants to do when she wants to do it. They're on their honeymoon and she's looking for a new species of friend. They go on a, on a research trip. She doesn't really care. And this is interesting. I think that on their research trip, Mathau becomes kind of the damsel in distress a lot of the times. And until the end, he's the one bitten by mosquitoes. He's the one covered in, or, or not covering himself in calamine lotion because right. he does, doesn't do anything anyway. I mean, he's the one that needs taken care of, but not in a, I'm a man, you take care of me, but I am a child, take care of me. So I don't think that while the feminism isn't overt, I think it's there. I think it's under the surface, I think that May is saying it, she's the one who's in control, regardless of what she doesn't care about the money. 
Right. I mean, she, how do you with her with her being? Uh, how does how does her house staff take take advantage of her when she doesn't give a shit? I mean, she just she doesn't. She's like, look, I want to do my research. I want to publish monographs. I want to I want to find new plants. I don't care. Right. Her life is not defined by the cash whatsoever, and it's not defined by the man. Right. Right. At all. I mean, again, she gets him to bend to her will to take a teaching job so they can spend time together. Right. So here's a take that I, and I don't necessarily know that it's right, but, and and notwithstanding of the hilarity of the rapid scene where they're in the canoe and, yeah. <laughs> and while Matt was imploring her to, <laughs> to go paddle. Go right up, go right <laughs> Him realizing what's coming is, uh, it's, oh God, it's just a great way to end that movie. I know that Henrietta can't swim, but there's almost a moment in that movie, and when she's clinging to the rocks, where I th- it it where I think she it, it, she might realize what Henry's trying to do, and and when she lets go, it's a matter of well, if Henry wants to kill me, if Henry wants to let me die, then we'll see how this plays out. But I believe in Henry. It's a trust thing. Right, and because there's just this look in her eye where I think it, you you the she may be more knowing than yeah. the movie tries to get. Well, I don't know. Do movie, you think that that's Elaine May though? That I, that's just absolutely. I don't think you can take that look out of her eye. <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Just, just, right? just, just, just I mean, just her, just <laughs> Elaine May <laughs> right. as an entity, right? Just just knows everything, and that will <laughs> never. There's it's always there, right? She tried to hide him, but it's just there. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I, I I get that. That's interesting. I mean, I mean, there are. I think different moments throughout the film where you you wonder or think like she knows what's going on right I mean she gets it doesn't she she's too smart not to kind of see some of that so I mean when he's talking about Mendelssohn and, <laughs> and genetics and stuff she's just gotta be like you're a fucking idiot <laughs> right whatever, right yeah I, I, I lost a thought there no, I, I'm but sorry. no 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 it's not your fault um it's my addled brain, but uh, <laughs> just just the entirety of of I, yeah, how this whole story evolves, and, and it I so looking at it from a feminist bent, I don't I don't think that Henrietta is. I do think that Henrietta is swept off her feet by Henry's uh, his his attention, right? His attention, and not only and, and his and his protection of her, because one can imagine that when she was under her father's wing, that that was the same thing, and she kind of didn't have to to deal with that. I don't think that Henrietta needs a man in her life but i do think that she recognizes when someone's being chivalrous or, or what have you and kind of lets to see what that, that that goes along but also this movie is so chaste and so innocent that it's it's really kind of a funny um comparison to the films that were coming out at this time that would be kind of in this same you know kind of lumped in together i mean even the graduate or carnal knowledge or i mean and those are two nichols films but there are other movies in this in this era that that were, it, you don't get the indication that that maybe henrietta and henry have ever had sex that it's even even crossed their minds do They're, they even care right and then do they care right is henry <laughs> i mean henry, henry's made it clear he does not like you <laughs> right right yeah so i mean i'm pretty sure the man wears an ascot to bed so <laughs> math is so good in this oh he's so fantastic. so good in this i it's it's i think we sleep a little bit on how good of an actor he i mean i know that he you know won a tony and and and, and it was, but people i think people remember him for grumpy old men right, right. And, and don't look back at stuff like this or even his kind of 
cameo, and not really a cameo, but his brief role in charade. And I mean, right. other in other things too. But I'm just you know, well. I a mean, taking a Pelham one, two, three. I mean, like there's, there's yes, uh, yeah. Even the dramatic stuff was was amazing, oh, yeah. right? You know, and you can I mean dismiss it, but Richie's uh, Bad News Bears. I mean, he's great oh, in that. I mean, it's like that movie gets a, a, a rep of being a kids movie, but man, there's some deep themes in that film. So yeah, I I, I it's the final thoughts. I I think it's. It's one. It's one of those movies again that should be held in the same breath as The Graduate and anything any of these seminal films that were coming out of the late '60s, early '70s. And the fact that it's not is is too bad. It really is. You, people are missing out on on, on a really. And it, but I will say this too: it's not a it's not a forgiving watch. Really, you kind of have to like it's like The Graduate's funnier just on the, on its face, and it also The Graduate kind of relents a little bit. It lets you it lets you breathe. This one doesn't. This one doesn't. Like you have to pay attention. I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a more challenging. It's a definitely a more challenging film, and so I, I kind of understand where it's not. Um, you know, it may not be as beloved, but but man, as far as 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 if you are a comedy writer, if you are a you know comedian in any sort of way, I, this movie. It, I mean, like, if you want to write dialogue, find Elaine May. Right, find. Right. find Speaking May. of dialogue, I want to leave with leave this segment with one last quote that I really liked, and they are sitting in Henry's car talking about plants and botany, and Henry at a turn, you know, looks at Henry and says, "Oh, are you a botanist?" And his response is, "No, just a botanical journal reader. Every science has its fans." Let's move on to the Heartbreak Kid. All right. Neil Simon wrote it. Elaine May directed it. The Heartbreak Kid. It's just plain old-fashioned corny lingo, sir. Uh, I have fallen head over heels with your Kelly here. Uh, it just, you know, it didn't take me long to make up my mind. One good look did it, actually. I said you're lying in my spot. You are this terrific girl! You are this terrific Now, there is a slight complication. Um, I happen to be a newlywed. We're coming, Miami! Miami Beach, here we come! Here we come, Miami! Here we come, Miami Beach! You may have seen her around the pool. Lenny! She's a nice girl, but just uh, not 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 really my type. My plan, just as soon as I uh, work out this messy business here, to uh, to follow you out to Minnesota. The current temperature in Minneapolis is three degrees below zero. It's two degrees below in St. Paul and four below. I, I would like I would like to know, uh, in all candor, how you feel about what I've said and. Uh, to ask if I have your approval. Not if they tied me to a horse and pulled me 40 miles by my tongue. Well, that's, that's an honest answer, sir. This is yeah, Ben Stiller and uh, Michelle Moynihan. And <laughs> this is 1972, right? This is just kind of a year after this. So this is right on the heels of A New Leaf. This is based on a short story that was first published in Esquire in 1966 called A Change of Plans by Bruce Friedman. Uh, Friedman is also a Jewish writer, and this is where that kind of like back in the anti-Semitism comes in. So, okay, here's the story. After briefly dating, Lenny marries Lila. 
Lenny, played by Charles Grodin, is emotionally and otherwise shallow, self-absorbed, sporting good salesman. Lila is earnest and expects a long-term emotional commitment, uh, even if she can be really annoying. Um, on their honeymoon in Miami Beach, Lenny meets Kelly, played by Simple Shepherd, a college student from Minnesota on vacation with her wealthy parents. After Lila suffers a severe sunburn, Lenny starts a kind of tryst with Kelly, like a three-day tryst. He's more into her than she's into him. He seems like a toy to her, a thing to kind of save off boredom. Lenny engages in a series of lies and deceits to spend time with Kelly. He then impulsively calls off his marriage to Lila to pursue her. He claims Kelly is the woman he's been waiting for all of his life. He just timed it wrong. So he leaves Lila after five whole days of marriage, follows Kelly to Minnesota where her father tries to get rid of him. He offers Lenny a bribe. Lenny says no and eventually, like right away, marries Kelly. At the reception, Lenny is basically ignored by everyone. There's a scene where he is relegated to talking to two children, they're like eight years old, who also end up walking away from him. And so he sits by himself, humming close to you by the carpenters while the party goes on around him and without him. This movie's fucking brutal, man. Oh, man. It is so tough. It's so it, tough. It, it It is. It's so fucking good. But like it is. And. And what's what I love about the, uh, this being her second film, and and there's, and I say this a lot about filmmakers that I that I like, but there's a confidence to this movie that you just don't see very often. She got she dives and 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 I, and I think it comes from her storytelling background and her improvisation background and, and her comedy background. She just dives right in, like we're not given any setup. We are in the wedding party basically scene one and and you can see and there's so much subtlety this movie begs to be seen multiple times mm. because there's so much shit going on in the background there's so many like it, you you see this end scene in the graduate and now we're gonna bring this up a lot because this to me could be this is like a a, a bizarre world graduate movie this is a, it, you know it basically kind of follows a lot of the same beats right i mean but this is why may should have had the same career as nichols I mean, right absolutely but but so all that scene in the in the wedding scene in the graduate where he's banging on the glass and you see all the people in a you know that you the Nichols focuses on the people and granted the Nichols this was made in sixty seven this is seventy two but you see all the people and them like mouthing all the curse words and all their that shit happens in every fucking scene in this movie it's in the background and it's not called out like Nichols does it is there are so many subtle nods there's so much stuff going on in the background of this movie as well as the foreground. It you you it's it's it, it really really rewards multiple watches, but but as we're going through that first scene, the, it it mirrors it, it is exactly mirroring the last scene where everyone is basically ignoring Charles Grodin and and Lila in this case where they don't believe that they should be married. These people have gone through the motions of a of a typical New York Jewish wedding of young people that they realize. We'll probably stay together forever just out of you know boredom and and Necessity. responsibility yeah. right their lives will be miserable just like theirs are and they realize that and they, they but they couldn't do anything to, to stop it. it it's the exact same thing that happens at the very end of this movie the again the indictment of the male gaze and arrested development of men specifically in this era or throughout time has <laughs> right. uh, is 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 I don't, it's one of those, okay, I, you don't see it. You don't see it in any other movie. Not even in The Graduate. The, the Graduate, you know, Hoffman's character is is basically applauded on throughout the entire movie. 
everything that comes at him, you want him to end up with, <laughs> with her at the end. In this movie, he's a piece of shit from the very beginning oh, and is not ever redeemed. And it's and again, and it's still brilliantly funny, wildly funny. It is. And it's a different way. I mean, the lines in this movie, if you love the lines in A New Leaf, fucking the lines in uh, Heartbreak Kid are are. What don't don't put some, don't, you don't put a Milky Way in someone's mouth when they don't want it. <laughs> what does he say about Midwest produce? Oh, there's no there's no like so there's no something in the cauliflower. There's no like there's there's no falsehood in the cauliflower or something along it's, those it's lines. It's like sincere produce or something. <laughs> <laughs> You're just. <laughs> it was one of the things things that I think she does really well in this that was a little different than um, in a new leaf is I think she's so good at just observing these characters and kind of letting them go and letting us watch this too. And that fits in with watch, seeing people in the background and kind of what they're doing where it's not called out like like Nichols does. It's just kind of there. And she does this thing in this film with this like strategic use of close-ups. I love how she does this. Like when they're when they stop at the diner on the way to Miami Beach and Lila's eating an egg salad sandwich and it's all over her face. And May just gives us a close-up of that. Of her face, of her talking about how good this egg salad is. And then it cuts to Groden's face, again, in close-up. And you understand immediately who these two people are if you didn't before and how they're different and exactly what's going to happen if you didn't know already. But I think it's so good. And she doesn't do it. I don't think she does it any other time. Uh, even even like when we see Groden at the end, it's in like a you know like a single. It's not. Right. It's not in a close up. He's there's 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 one other scene a little bit before that scene where they're driving and 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 you get the sense that again that these are even though Groden still looks like he's probably in his thirties in this he, movie. Yeah, he was like thirty seven or something. Right, and he's, but, but he's supposed to be playing twenty two. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> And he's he's so good in this as well. Like I love I love Charles Grodin. I I think he's a fantastic actor, and and his physicality in this is is and is like his just kind of New York. Um, it, it, um, you know, again we I use this too much, but like the Woody Allenness of it, like the whole like nebbish bookish. You know, not really. You know, what it's just kind of an East Coast intellectual thing, it right? Probably I mean, has more confidence than he should, <laughs> right? I mean, right. <laughs> Yeah, for whatever reason, right? I mean, he works in a sporting goods store, but is not athletic. He's whatsoever, a, yeah, right? a sporting goods salesman. He goes around and sells <laughs> stuff to store. Because what does Eddie Albert say? Sticks and balls. Mm-hmm. You, you're, you're into sticks and balls. <laughs> but again, these are two characters. One, this is another male character that doesn't really know what to do with sex, right? His wife is seemingly probably grown up in a, in a, in a kind of conservative Jewish family, family who then got married basically to have sex, right? To kind of unleash herself, which I would imagine a lot of that happened in, this, in the late 60s. And that's how 70s. Groden comes off, right? Is, right? He's getting married to... <laughs> right, right. Because they're, yeah, because at the beginning, you're, they, they talk about it and they're, and they're talking about waiting, essentially. He's like, no one waits anymore. But when they're driving from New York down to Miami Beach and they cut it, they're cutting through Virginia... Lila starts to like start to come into her own and start, and so she shows <laughs> she shows him her chest and he and then while they're driving and he's like all freaked out <laughs> that some trucker will be able to see her breasts yeah and she's like I don't <laughs> care they're mine like, yeah but he's appalled by it he's appalled by when they when they do finally have sex about him like everything 
this movie plays such a fine line of like you dislike like trying to make you dislike both characters and then trying to make you kind of decide which which line of you know which line which, who your you know your team line or team bro team Winnie. Yeah. Yeah. Winnie yeah yeah thank you and because she is annoying I mean like oh. but she has but she has but they're nothing like she doesn't clearly deserve what happens to her. And and these are all things that Linny should have found out well before marrying a yeah, young how did you girl, not, right? You, how did you never have an egg salad sandwich with her? Right. Well, but, I mean, they, they go out for pizza, and, like, she can't stop. She's excited about the pizza and can't stop laughing at dinner. I mean, that is enough, right? I mean, what I mean is, like, he should have known, like, that would happen with egg salad sandwich. What I love about her, though, and her character compared to, especially compared to Linny, is she kind of knows who she is. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean kind of. She does know And she who doesn't she apologize. Is. And she look, is not. She, yep. She's like, look, I'm going to eat an egg salad. I fucking love egg salad. I'm going to yeah, eat some egg it's salad. Great. And I don't care if it's all over my face. <laughs> why, do, why do you care if I don't right. care? Yeah. I mean, so in c- comparing the, the sort of like men and women here, I mean, that's the. Groden has no idea. Right. Lenny has no, no idea. Lenny's, who he Lenny's is, upset what he by wants. her like asking him if he's enjoying the sex or if she, and, right. and like Lenny's upset by it every time she says that's gonna be us fifty years from now. Like everything about this. Lila was a was a thing, was a was a milestone in his life that he had no idea that he knew that he had to cross, but he had no idea what it entailed. And his selfishness and and uh, you know wrapped up lifestyle as far as like it's being sheltered. He he just did this thing really without thinking, which is what he does moving forward. He sees another prize in Miami Beach and completely pursues it, realizing that now he's got, you know, an anchor around his leg that he has to get rid of. But to that end, it's really just more of, of another annoyance of hers that she's still there. It it really she is she doesn't understand what he might why he might want to leave her and do this other thing. <laughs> it really is a brutally painful but funny film like it's it's really uncomfortable throughout and really eddie albert's the only one who is the eddie albert is the audience surrogate right he's angry from jump street he sees lenny as yeah well and and you could argue that there's some anti-semitism on eddie albert's character's part potentially but he also sees lenny as this annoyance who's coming up in on his vacation in miami beach who's inserting himself like literally inserting himself into a (laughs) (laughs) well that that but also like when they when they're sitting together watching that show in miami beach and lenny's like on a squeezed in a kid's seat like a layer below of everyone else talking he's he's an interloper i mean he he literally is an interloper the the anti-semitism is interesting there but i think he's just like who is this guy trying to get with my daughter right get away and and he's protective father right another guy another father who's probably seen guys sniff around his daughter all the time right her entire life (laughs) and her she's she's no innocent in any of this Mm -hmm. she definitely eggs him on she definitely sees him as a plaything, and she definitely sees him as a challenge because he's married, he she knows from the second time that they, they see each other that she's that he's in, at least involved, if not married, and sees it as a as a fun thing to do while she's on whatever spring break or away from her family on summer break, yeah. away from her college. She's going to pull the wings off of this fly, and that's <laughs> right, and at least make it, make him squirm. Yeah, and so Lenny goes through and, and lies to Lila 
throughout uh, and tells her that, that, you know, he has to go. He, he schemes to go to dinner with Sybil Shepard. Um, he lies to her about meeting an old college buddy after she gets sunburned. And so she so she won't want to come out. He keeps promising her this lobster dinner and pecan pie that he's been talking about since since um, since Virginia. So this is the scene where Lenny finally comes to and he's going to break up with Lila. And we start the scene with a live lobster that gets hit on the head. <laughs> and then we go into the scene that is a two-hander where we're, they're both on the same side of the table. You see people around around them in the restaurant. And this is their big, like, this is the dinner that he's been promising her. And it comes to and he orders pecan pie for two and the restaurant doesn't have pecan pie. They're out of pecan pie. And he fucking loses it. <laughs> Just goes ballistic, and and Lila doesn't really understand. She's like, it's fine. We, I mean, and the guy, and the and the and the, um, the waiter finally relents and says, we have one slice of pecan pie. Would you like me to bring that out to you? And he brings out blueberry pie. I think is the other alternative. <laughs> and this is where you know Lenny starts to talk to Lila about how this is not all that he was cracked up to be, and, and basically how he wants to end the marriage. And of course, then she starts to want to throw up and make. She starts making a noise. And Lenny's whole thing is really just about keeping her, like squashing everything that's about her and not letting her live in the moment and not letting, not realizing that there's a moment where, and this again, why this movie is like so woefully painful and funny at the same time. When Lenny is lying to her, and it, so it, Lenny is lying to her over a course of three nights about because he wants to go meet Sybil Shepherd and her family. And he comes in one night saying that. He um, has to go to like he has to go to dinner with his. This is before he has to um, before he before the, he says that there's a car wreck right, with his friend. Right. So he has to go to dinner with his friend. And he's putting on a coat and tie, and he's looking at himself in the mirror. And Lila is looking at him, and you see the back of Lila, and you see Lenny, and and you actually I guess you see Lila's face too in the mirror, and you see how like poised she is looking at him, but he is looking around her at himself in the mirror, and it's just it's heartbreaking. And because all this woman wants to do is spend time with her husband. She's been holed up in this hotel room the entire time while he's making moves on this other woman and spending time with this other woman. And all she wants to do is spend time with him. And all he's going to do is looking around her. And it's such a great visual, a great scene that, that comes back into play when you see other people around him looking at him and that with that same sort of disdain or not even or not even looking mm-hmm. at him at all. It, so paying more attention to her and, and and then back at the like wedding reception yeah where they're just like you don't exist right so his lies and lies and lies start ratcheting up on one another by the time that he's <laughs> in a really funny lie where he tells her that they've been in a car wreck and that it was on the news and where you're not watching the news and like the the escalation of the lie it, while it's still horrid it's it's very very funny and I've got to go to court <laughs> at night I was there the all day <laughs> why are you so sun why are you tan why well, had to sit outside right you don't think they have court all day long <laughs> There was depositions, and I, I went sat on the steps. <laughs> and so, he breaks up with Lila, leaves her there in Miami Beach, and then the movie takes a really, really hard shift to where Lenny goes to Minnesota to pursue Sybil Shepherd's in her college town. Again, the beats of this and Graduate are yeah. almost identical, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just once once Lenny is you know, but once. Braddock is 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 confronted with, by Mr. Robinson. Then then it cuts right. He goes off and lives on his own. He's in the boarding house, which Elaine May is actually in. And then he goes and pursues daughter Robinson, <laughs> Elaine Robinson, shit, uh, <laughs> in in at Berkeley, right? And then right. so that the, all those beats kind of stay the same. Yeah. So 
Sybil Shepherd's kind of taken aback at this point where she doesn't, I mean, she didn't expect her plaything to come and pursue who is her. She, who is she surrounded by? Right, she's surrounded by these like Midwestern, like giant Nordic Minnesotan men. <laughs> right, football players. They're like who, Vikings. <laughs> they are just so like stark contrast. Then when they look like her, right, they look like someone she would end up in in this kind of like weird Aryan like, uh, you know, society. We could say Nordic. I mean, it sounds less like white supremacist. And <laughs> look, I'm all about soft and quiet, right? It's just... <laughs> There's a callback, listeners. <laughs> so she's surprised and really doesn't know what to do with herself. And, 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 and probably no one's ever had to pursue her like this or pursued her like this. And so she eventually gets worn down by Linny and they end up marrying. And yeah, the scene at the end, which mirrors the scene at the beginning where everyone's ignoring him, everyone's seeing him with disgust and he's left by himself. There's a moment at the very, very end as we cut to credits where Linny like almost smiles, like lifts his head back and smiles where it's almost a little bit of self-realization of like, oh, oh fuck, like th- I did it. I got this and now I'm stuck again like i just i just pers- i did the exact same thing i did before i pursued this thing and now that i have it i don't want it right. or let's let's take a more self-aware approach too has he realized that he has become to kelly what lila was to him yeah quite this, possibly this annoyance this unsophisticated kind of buzzing around and sort of saying stupid things like the cauliflower has you know, so, whatever he says about the produce in the Midwest about it being so sincere. Because, again, like, I mean, the Eddie Albert looks at him like he's a fucking idiot because he because he is. And, and that same kind of just annoyance that he had with with Lila seems to register on everyone else's face there. And, and I'd like to think that he realized that. But I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, Groden, I, I love Charles Groden, too. And almost everything he's in makes me cringe. Right, right. He is, even he's so good at that. And even like his stuff on Letterman, like when he would show up and, and be a guest on Letterman, it's the same kind of like this curmudgeon, but yet a kind of cuddly curmudgeon. I, right, I mean, right. Except he's, for Midnight Run, which he was just brilliant right, in anyway. Right. Yeah. Did you ever follow him when he had his own TV show? He had his own talk show, like, and at the and he became so obsessed with the O.J. Simpson trial and O.J. Simpson like being let off that it was it was almost like weirdly like Lenny Bruce esque where it was just like he couldn't let it go. Wow! And it was just kind of like I, I don't know if he ever got past it. I mean, at a certain point, you stop watching MSNBC, but it was really bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeannie Berlin is really good in this, and I think she was nominated, right? For she was nominated. Eddie actress. Albert was nominated. And it, as well. Yeah, those two were yeah supporting. Roles. And also, they didn't want um, they didn't want her for this role either. I forget who they wanted. Um, but it wasn't, oh no. So there were a couple things on this. Like, so this was, uh, Neil Simon adapted this right? and he had a contract clause where none of his words could be changed, but he would come on set every single day. And Elaine May was like, look, we're going to improvise and then we'll do it your way one time and we'll see which his way is better. And eventually Neil Simon stopped coming to set, <laughs> <laughs> but the studio did not want, I think the studio did not realize that. Jeannie Berlin was was Elaine May's daughter, and they wanted someone more attractive in that role. Which, which one? That's that's ludicrous. Yeah. Because the role demands some. You can't have another Sybil Shepherd in that role. It, it doesn't work. No, again, right? she kind of has to. She kind of has to disappear, right? She kind of has to fade into the background. And and they didn't realize that it was her daughter when they were doing this. So it was like that. That was just a weird. <laughs> like no, she's going to stay. She, the way we've cast who we've cast. Yeah, so yeah, she yeah she's great. So. 
I want I want to touch on Pauline Kale Corner for just a second. <laughs> Pauline Kale did not like the influence Nichols and May that style of loot that style of comedy. She didn't like what it had done to movies, largely because that style of com- comedy relied on a nuance of tone and voice and rhythm and. Kale didn't think it translated well to the screen. Well, she would have loved the Fairly Brothers version of Heartbreak Kid then. Yeah. I just wanted to put that out there because I don't understand that. I don't, because to me, this, I mean, I don't know, what does this mean? Like, you're not paying attention? Because. Right. She must have suffered a lot in the next decade then. Yeah. Even, even the line when, so when Lenny and Kelly are, are on Kelly's dad's boat and. Another great scene where he's like running to get there. And yeah, trying to get, trying to get away. <laughs> but Eddie Albert's like, okay, lunchtime or whatever. And she goes, okay, I'll be right there. And he goes, boy, you do everything that he tells you to do? And she goes, yeah. He goes, well, what if he told you to drop me? I'd drop you. And just walks away. <laughs> but it's those little moments that right. he's just kind of like, eh, okay, and follows after. Um, there's my, there's my. Pauline Kale dig for the day. <laughs> as soon as we buy a subscription to the New Yorker, uh, we'll, we'll do we'll, more Pauline we'll, Kale. We'll, we'll do. Look, she writes. She wrote in 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 her essays and reviews. She writes so much, but she doesn't say very much. Sorry, I didn't mean to get into this like Pauline Kale thing. Again. <laughs> but I was like reading through things today, and I was just like, man, there's a lot of words here, but you're not saying very much. So anything to wrap up on Elaine May? I mean, look, she's, we're going to get into this like further. No, no, no. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to looking at the next two, especially Ishtar, just from a perspective of, of re looking at it, kind of relitigating Ishtar. Again, just say the same things over and over again. Just it's criminal that one, you can't find heartbreak kid on any streaming service. It's the DVDs are expensive. Basically what happened is that Bristol Myers squib, uh, the pharmaceutical company, at one point had an entertainment division of and course. bought Heartbreak Kid and then immediately it went they decided they didn't want to do that anymore but they still own the rights to Heartbreak Kid so you can and they have no interest in selling it it's one or of those even realizing you, that it's there right it's one of those things where you almost hope like there's a an Elaine May box set that Criterion picks up or yeah. some other somebody that can that can kind of <clears throat> wrestle it from the grasp of you know, because it, and you can see it on YouTube, and that's basically it. Yeah, that's and, that's and, and it's and it's it's still, and and for the the other, we keep going back to the idea of like these remakes happen, and then you forget about the originals. The fact that you can watch the Fairly Brother Ben Stiller <laughs> one, and not the other, it's further criminal. They're so fucking different. They're so fucking yeah. different. That this and and it's it really is. It's it's just it's why. Why did they decide to remake that movie? Knowing what they were, why did... I can see Ben Stiller maybe wanting to do it. But I I don't know what they thought that they could bring to the table aside from... Spunk in the hair jokes. Right. Yeah. Fart gags, right? The, The one clever bit that I will give this credit for is that... The 2007 remake for is that the ending of this one... It kind of has a twist ending, and I'm going to spoil it for everybody. Basically, Eddie loses everything once Lila decides to... So the divorce is much more acrimonious. He does not ever go back and and marry Kelly. Um, So basically, Lila leaves and takes his sporting goods store, and he has to stay in Mexico. They're in Mexico this time Mm -hmm. around. And, And Kelly leaves... And eventually she comes back. She she realizes she has feelings for him. She comes back to Mexico and tells him all of that and says, hey, you know what? 
Um, I know you left your wife, blah, blah, blah. Maybe we can make something work. And then and she leaves and goes back to her cabana, and it turns out that Ben Stiller's married another local woman. So I has to do it. That was a pretty clever, okay. Okay. A pretty okay. clever yeah. twist ending. Yeah. Everything else <clears throat> was, again, was pretty bad. <laughs> Okay, well, let's let's get into some films that people might like Ugh. if they like this thing. So let's do our recommended. I'm, if you I'm, like, now you you had, you said so you had badly. some trouble here. So let me let me ask this: How did you approach finding films to pair up? Like like I mean, how did you find films to recommend to somebody if they're like, oh, I love a new leaf, and you're like, oh, well, if you love this, you should right. I, because again, I would just recommend you watch a new leaf and 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 a heartbreak. Kid. After after you watch a new leaf, you should watch. So I feel heart, the heartbreak kid. Like, <laughs> I'm just curious. Right, right. Yeah. So I was, you know, typically what I try to do, I, I look at the actors and see if there's something that's similar. And there are. There's a lot of Walter Matthau roles, but not like this, really. There, I have a Walter Matthau film in my list, but it's not. It's just a different. And I don't even know if I really like that movie, but I think it's interesting to watch. And then I try to try to do similar themes. But I think May was so ahead of her time and it really hasn't been. <clears throat> Like, we see fucked up relationship movies, but we really haven't seen the subtle hand. I, I really think these two films stand alone in in what they're trying to do and what they accomplish. Even The Graduate, um, I don't think does it as deftly as Elaine May does. And I fucking love The Graduate. But the fact that we don't talk about The Heartbreak Kid and, and A New Leaf in the same breath as that film really speaks volumes of, of, of where we were in the 70s and where we are today and, and where are people who I know like supposedly Seinfeld's thinks that's a Harper kids, the funniest movie that, you know, that's his favorite movie and blah, blah, blah. There's these, we just, she doesn't get pulled in, in any sort of feminist conversation. She really gets left behind. She doesn't get pulled in with, you know, this, this level of New York comedians of that era. And so I don't know. It, it it's it's unfortunate. I, I I could keep going back to it. It's just, yeah. it's really like I. If there's anything that this podcast does, I want you to go out and see a new leaf and a heartbreak kid because those are genius films. I think they'll become some of your favorite films. Yeah. So anyway, uh, your first uh, recommended. Okay, like? my first one, and and I focused more on the relationship stuff and like maybe the weirdness of some of the films. But anyway, my first one I think is a pretty easy pairing, and this is Bringing Up Baby, mm-hmm. 1938, by Howard Hawks. Cary Grant, paleontologist, trying to secure a million-dollar endowment from this wealthy, from what, from the wealthy Catherine Hepburn. Um, he wants to complete his brontosaurus skeleton project. Catherine Hepburn has a pet leopard. And there you go. Name Baby. It's, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's so much a fun movie. Yeah. Like, all those kind of screwball comedies of the of the 40s. Um, I the love Preston Sturge stuff. It's just, it's, it's really, one of the ones I watched kind of thinking that I would add, so this may be a little bit of a cheat, but the Miracle, have you ever seen The Miracle of Morgan Creek? Oh. It's a, it's a Preston Sturge's film. Okay. It is, a, it is, a, it, so it, it, it somewhat mirrors, it kind of flips the gender roles, but essentially what happens is, is there's, it's a small town, this daughter of this is of a of a single father um, is sending off the troops, and so she's all excited about going dancing, and 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 the troops are leaving the next day, and this is like World War Two, and she goes out and she has this kind of nebbish man who's in love with her, who invites her to the movies, and she basically says, "No, I can't go because I'm going to go to this dance." Well, her father gets wind, 
of the dance is like, no, you're not going to a dance with a, with a bunch of soldiers. Like, cause he had read an article about how, um, there are all these military marriages and, and so he's like, no, you can't go. She's so like, well, okay, well, I'm going to go to the movies with, with my friend. And he's like, fine. So they're going to go three see They're going to go see three picture shows together, but she just uses us as a cover to go dancing. Well, at some point in the middle of the night, or during the dancing, she gets lifted up above her head, above this guy's head, and she hits this um, mirrored ball. So by the end of the night, she doesn't remember anything. But it turns out she's been she got married, and she doesn't know who the and she doesn't know who the who the, who the, who the husband is, and also she's pregnant. <laughs> And so now, and this is in the night, this is 1940s. Wow, yeah. So this is like very like pressing up against the Hayes code and like, mm-hmm. and, and so now she's like employing her boyfriend to kind of cover for him. And now it's this comedy of errors. Like he takes her across state lines to, to perform this marriage by proxy thing. And that gets him in trouble because he took a minor across state lines. And so it's this whole like, and like it's really, but it also at the end, like title card, happy ending we're all good right yeah so yeah. but it is a lot i mean it's preston surges like a lot of this like bringing a baby type of so much fun so many great like double entendres yeah. and like just so much great dialogue um something about like i haven't been this sour or <laughs> since i drank that like gallon of lemonade I was, there's all these like little like <laughs> line uh and like her dad's name is um it's like he's like captain Cockblocker, but like it's <laughs> so it's just all this like little subtle digs it's great but my first one. Okay, after that rant. Right, right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's not one of them. Uh, my first one is divorce Italian style. Okay. So, yeah, just another guy um, who's he um, doesn't enjoy being married to his wife and he can't get divorced because it's looked looked down upon. And so now he's looking at all these ways to to kill her. And then he but he realizes he can't kill her without going to jail. So he and he pushes her in front of another man so that if he can kill her in the throes of passion by catching them while they're in an adulterous act and he can get off. It is just this like <laughs> screwball comedy. It's black and white. It's so much. It's like you're it's it's you know, it's set in Sicily. So it's got all these great set pieces that. Yeah, that was my first one. So excellent. Excellent. All right. My second one is Nuts in May 1976. Mike Lee. It's 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 one of Mike Lee's early teleplays that he did for BBC. So oh, okay. kind of cheating. No, no, that's fine. Um, but but it's it's this. It is funny, but it's so weird in how it's funny. It's a kind of cringy humor. So this like middle class couple in England goes on like a camping ho- or a camping holiday in Dorset, and you know they're looking at the grass and they're talking about how best to pitch the tent and and <laughs> and the wife will ask do you want to look at the rocks that i picked up today and it's just this the humor is so dry and so weird some of mike lee's stuff can get i don't know a little cynical i mean this is dark <laughs> in its own way but uh, like peace and quiet just eludes them the whole time like, when they're out in the in the in the woods it's, it's, check yeah, it out. where did yeah. you find criterion, criterion? okay yeah. cool cool yeah. cool yeah, I figured that Mike Lee's a pretty much beloved di- Criterion director. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, look, I love Naked. I love the film Naked. Sure. Just, <laughs> this isn't as violent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my second one, and this is the movie that I'm not sure that I actually liked. It's called Pete and Tilly with Walter Matthau and Car- Carol Burnett. It is the the dialogue is brilliant, and so basically, it is about these two later in life singles who all of their friends are trying to set up. They don't really have much interest really even seemingly in one another, but through a series of like, there's nobody else and they, and we don't annoy each other so much. They end up getting married. They end up having a kid. The kid ends up dying 
And then so there's this big and so and like he's been unfaithful to her throughout the entire marriage, but they end up kind of reconciling at the end after this horror. It really is like a bizarre, tragic comedy. And but the, the dialogue of like um, at the very beginning when they're when when Walter Matthau is courting Carol Burnett, I think this is Carol Burnett's like first big film role. He like takes her to uh, a Greek restaurant that's bad just so he can say <laughs> he can make little puns like beware of Greeks wearing gifts or wearing. So it was a Greek that he was wearing lifts in his shoes. He was wearing, he's like, beware of Greeks wearing lifts. And like, and he goes, takes her to a Chinese restaurant just because he loves the fact that this waiter is, it always spills something on him. And it's just, he's like, he's like, he lives this life. that's very much like, um, Henry in a new leaf. He said, he's just not quite that rich. And he ends up marrying Cara Burnett mostly out of like, well, what else are we going to do? He plays jazz time piano and he does it in the buffs. Like you see Walter and Matthau's naked ass in this movie, but <laughs> yes. And, and they have this kid enough. Obviously they love the kid more than they love each other. And, and, and Walter Matthau is this very much a madman type of, uh, existence where he has this business, but he, he's sleeping with all of his secretaries and Carol Burnett's like, at one point she confronts one of his, his mistresses and she, and the mistress is like, Hey, well, he's just a firecracker. And he's like, it's like, and he, you know, it's not conventionally attractive, but you know, he's, so he's, he's just a firecracker and he's just like, and he doesn't have cheekbones. <laughs> right. And the mistress was like, why did you, if you knew all this, why did you marry me? And he's like, and she's like, just very droll. He's like, because he was a firecracker <laughs> and then walks out. <laughs> and so they, they really have this harrowing event where the, the child gets sick and the doctor comes in and is telling them that, you know, he doesn't have much longer to live. And then they split up after a while and Carol Burnett toys around. It's very John Irving. Like, it's very, like, gotcha. uh, kind of Hotel <laughs> New Hampshire, World According to Garp, without, but I don't know. There was just something compelling about it. Even when I was watching, still watching it, I was going, I'm not, this is not a fun movie to watch, but there's something compelling about watching these two characters kind of live their, this life together. I don't know. Yeah. So, Pete, Pete and Tilly. Pete and Tilly. Sounds like an opera. Okay. <laughs> kind of along the same lines, my next one is a film called Elvira Madigan, uh, 1967 uh, by Bo. Vitterberg. So this is based on a true, this is what it's based on a true story set in 1889, a tightrope walker and a soldier fall in love. She leaves her family. like, like unique jobs. It, she leaves her family circus. <laughs> this was written by Bill Keen. <laughs> and he, he leaves, he deserts the army and his wife and children. It's kind of a Romeo and Juliet story. They run off, right? They, they sort of run off together. It's this whirlwind, you know, romance. They don't have hardly any money, and it's soon gone. And eventually, after a brief kind of, you know, blissful sort of love, they, they fall on hard times and decide to kill themselves. It's just as toxic as Romeo and Juliet. And look, it's a gorgeous film. I mean, it is a a very beautiful film. I think Vitterberg does some interesting stuff um, metaphorically with with visuals and sort of visual language. It's it's romanticized. I mean, the 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 movie really romanticizes the true story. Uh, in real life, the soldier was obsessive, uh, wore her down. She had a mental breakdown, and that's why she eventually ran off with him. I mean, so it, 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 it's a much darker story than than the movie paints. But the movie, yeah, I mean, the movie is just beautiful, and it's kind of whimsical. It's not light; it's still heavy, but it has this kind of just kind of magic in it. So yeah, it's worth checking out. All right. Uh, my last one is Ghost World by Terry Close. Okay. 
Um, just kind of the same, like, I, I like Edith's, um, or Enid's, uh, I married up to, to Groden and to Henry, um, her path where she is kind of walking roughshod through this life of hers and doesn't really, doesn't really have a place for herself. She doesn't really know what she wants to do. She befriends Steve Buscemi and kind of ruins his life in a sense, but then tries to help and then realizes basically the only way to like really try to set right of all the things that she's done is just to kind of disappear. I, 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 I really, I, I mean, I'm sure you, I know you've seen it, mm-hmm. but, um, I think Thor, Thor Birch is so good in it. Bishimi is so good in it. Scarlett Johansson is so good in it. Um, it really is uh, a beautifully touching film on the on the um, kind of still using the kind of crudeness of the R. Crumb, you know, type of humor that it has along with it. So, yeah, yeah. So Ghost good. World. All right. I want to throw one more out there because sure. you started I, off. I did. Start, I did start off. And, and I just and I just want to mention it. But one that I was going to the one that fell off my list was Minnie in Moskowitz, mm-hmm. Cassavetes film with Gina Rallins and, and, and Seymour Castle. I, I, I think that would pair well with with these two films, too. Yeah. So, yeah, just just throwing that out there. I mean, Cassavetes is another guy for me that is somewhat underrated and underappreciated, maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of. There's a lot of that in this era. There's, I think, the things that stand out, the things that got so much attention, was the were the things that were hyper violent, hyper sexualized. It, it's weird to me. I think The Graduate came out at the right time. I think The Graduate comes out and begins this kind of wave of film cynicism. I don't know. I mean, like the and yeah. and and where as you get into, you finally get into the '70s, then you're overtaken by. Coppola and Scorsese and kind of new and Lucas even I mean, yeah and 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 the new blockbuster wave with Spielberg and and so we have these these art house films that kind of fly under the radar you really have to like I mean and, and I you know you really have to kind of seek them out to in order to because we're not having a Casavetes film festival or you know it's Sure. Although I think Casavetes <clears throat> does get mentioned a lot more, a than, lot more than Lane May. Sure. And so I, I didn't mean to make this about Casavetes, <laughs> right? But but we will talk about Casavetes next time because we'll be looking at Mikey and Nikki, right, starring Peter Peter Falk and John Casavetes. And spoiler: Elaine May may have made a better Casavetes film than Casavetes ever. Made. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but but really, next time, Mikey and Nikki. Ishtar will continue with May Madness and get into that. We'll also talk more about the Real House Foundation and the films that you screen there. Yeah, if you want to watch so them, if you want to watch them before the next episode, uh, I screened Nine Days and Strawberry Mansion, both from the most recent years of our movies, so, so in 2020 and 2021, I believe. Both excellent choices. Anything else? That's it for me. Okay. All right. See you guys. And keep screaming. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you liked today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time. Ah!